0: Morning church. If you have a copy of God's Word, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Galatians chapter two this morning, Galatians chapter two. Galatians chapter two, for those of you who are visiting with us, we're walking through the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter two arguably has one of the most familiar, memorizable passages of all in all of uh, the Pauline epistles. When I was thirteen years old, I was in the middle school choir. And Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, for I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me, I think was the first passage that I memorized. It's hard, it's hard to know that for sure. I remember the context of it. We had to, as a part of a choir tour that we had in the summer, we had to memorize a sheet of verses and that verse was on there. I didn't really know what a choir tour was. I never had been on one. All of that was new to me. But I knew what a Texas Rangers baseball game was. And I knew what it meant to go to Six Flags. And so I was in. I'm going to memorize the verses. I, I remember vividly having no idea what Galatians chapter 2, verse 20 means. I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. It seemed to be I was walking. I was walking. I was breathing. And it seems like I was, I was alive and I'd just recently become a follower of Christ. So trying to understand what Paul was talking about in this very familiar passage. I, I remember it being something that, that I said, I, I do not understand what, what this is talking about here. And oftentimes we can do that with Scripture. We can take a passage; it has a kind of a, a rhyme and a ring to it. I've been crucified with Christ; I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. There's something about this that rings. And if we're going to be honest, we sort of take it out of its context; we lose a little bit of the surrounding meaning to this passage. So what I want us to do is is to to hear what does it mean to be in union with Christ. As Paul would talk about it, and and not only just the close-up, Galatians 2 verse 20, but I want us to put a panoramic setting on on our sermon hearing this morning. I want us to hear all of Galatians 2 that help us understand what does it mean to be united to Christ, to, to die to self, and for Christ to live in us. Well, it means four things. It certainly means more than four things. But in this passage, I want you to hear four truths that are connected to Galatians chapter 2 for your identity, my identity in Christ. And the first truth from Galatians 2 is that our courage is found in Christ. Notice with me in verse 1 through verse 6. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas. This is Paul talking, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, parenthetically, he says, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek, yet because of false brothers, secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so they might bring us into slavery. To them... We didn't yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you, the church in Galatia. From those who seemed to be influential, again, parenthetically, what they were makes no difference to me, Paul says. God shows no partiality, comes back to it. Thus, those I say who seemed influential added nothing to me. So, Galatians chapter 2 picking up on Paul's travel itinerary in Galatians chapter 1, verses 17 through 24. What happened after Paul's Damascus Road experience? What did he do? The early church was there in Jerusalem. There would be the temptation to think Paul, after he became a Christian, went to Jerusalem. But Galatians 1 says he didn't. Intentionally, he didn't. goes to Arabia first, then he goes to Damascus, and then after that, for 15 days, he goes to Jerusalem. Fifteen days he goes to Jerusalem. Then in Galatians chapter 2, we hear 14 years later. So Paul has his ministry. Fourteen years later, he receives a, revela- a revelation to go back to Jerusalem. What was the, the sense of that revelation? Was it a dream? Was it a vision? Was it someone that came? We don't know. We know everything we need to know in the Bible. We don't know everything that we might be curious to know. So we don't know what the source of that revelation is. It does seem that this might be connected to Acts chapter 11, where Paul and Barnabas and Titus are in conversation with the Jerusalem church about famine relief. There was a famine in Jerusalem. So the thing about Barnabas and Titus that you need to know is that Barnabas is a Jewish Christian. Titus is a Gentile Christian. Barnabas Paul, they've been circumcised. Titus hasn't been circumcised. They show up in Jerusalem. They begin to p- compare notes. And early on in the Jerusalem church, there begins to be this threat. Jewish Christians who said, Yes. Having faith in Jesus is very important, but you need to add to your faith in Jesus. You need to add observance of some of the Jewish laws. And one of which, the primary one, is you need to be circumcised. Christ plus circumcision. Who hasn't been circumcised? Raise your hand. Titus was there, never been circumcised. And what does Titus do? You got these Jewish Christians leaders right here in Jerusalem saying, this is what you need to do. And Titus says, "Uh uh-uh, No, I'm secure in Christ, and I know that faith alone in the work of Jesus alone is enough. I don't have to add to that. Paul stands beside him and says, nope, he's exactly right. He doesn't have to do that because his faith in Jesus is enough. You don't have to add to that. So here's Titus, here's Paul early on. You could imagine going back home center, the very center of the church movement, there could be a temptation for Paul to say, Titus, you just need to to do this. You need to do this. If we're going to have credibility with our ministry, you just need to do this. But what does Paul do? He says, no, the gospel's enough. It's enough. And there is a principle to learn from this really specific circumstance in the early church, and that is this, that when our confidence is found in Christ, we're able to resist, we're able to resist uh, the, the the circumstances around us, the applause of men and women around us. We're able to, another way to say this is, when our security is found in Christ, we gain the courage to stand for truth even when it confounds and disappoints those around us. I'm going to say it again, that when our security is When our identity is found in Christ, we gain the courage to stand for truth even when it confounds and disappoints those who surround us. Our chapel choir led us, along with our middle school choir, they led us this morning. And church, were you not excited about that? Let them hear that this morning. It's really good this morning. Okay, so they led us this morning, and what did they sing? They, they sang that I am not ashamed of the gospel. And this is a powerful passage because the very thing that I'm talking about in this passage here is, is to you and it's to me and it's to every one of us that are there in this room. But if your identity is not in Christ and if your security is not in Christ, you're going to miss this. You're going you're to think that I have to do what my friends do to really be somebody. I've got to go to where they're going to really be somebody. I've got to do what they're doing to really be somebody. And when you're 13 or 14 or 15 or 16 or 17 or 18, there can be a sense of who am I? And if you're not careful, you can be able to to listen. Who's going to applaud me? Who's going to celebrate me? And then that's where I find my identity. Now, guess what? Middle school choir, guess what? Chapel choir, you don't grow out of that. That these people that are here in this very room, they, they struggle with that too. You you struggle with that. You can let them in on that. That sometimes the applause and the accolades And the achievements, they can define us more than Christ in us defines us. And so there are none of us, whether we have our teenagers before us here or you in the pew that don't struggle with where is my identity found. And when your identity is rested and is rooted in the work of Jesus, we're able to disappoint some well-meaning people at times, maybe even confound co-workers, maybe even family members who say, I don't understand how you're spending your time and spending your money because there is another way to do that, but you're doing it this way. And you say, I'm rooted in Christ. My identity is not found in accolades. It's not found in applause. All of us need to be reminded of what we learn of in this foundational passage that our courage is found in Christ. But secondly, this morning, our cooperation is found in Christ. Look what Paul says. It starts in verses 7, moves to verse 10. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised. Follow this argument. Paul says, I've been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised. Just as Peter, James and John, the people back in Jerusalem, they've been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised. Same message, different audiences. Again, Paul, verse 8. For he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through mine for the Gentiles. Notice the repetition. This is all Paul saying. I have a ministry, same message. Mine's primarily going to those who are not of Jewish ethnicity, Jewish background. Peter, James, John, the Jerusalem church, they have a ministry. It's not just to Jewish people, but primarily it will be. Then he picks up in verse 9. And when James and Cephas and John, who seem to be pillars, this can be confusing. Because all of a sudden we have Cephas in here. Who in the world is this? Cephas is Aramaic for Peter remember Jesus back in the Gospels calls him rock here so this is anytime you see Cephas think Peter Peter Cephas here so when James and Peter and John who seemed to be pillars perceived the grace that was given to me they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised only they asked us to remember the poor the very thing I was eager to do what is Paul saying we compare notes they have a ministry their ministry is to the Jewish people our ministries to the Gentiles, same message, different methods, same message, different strategy. This is okay. They're not in competition, but they are in what? In celebration. They're in cooperation. Now, one's not a threat to the other. They're saying, hey, we can agree on this deed ministry that we're going to remember the poor. Again, that connects us back to Acts chapter 11. If there's a famine in Jerusalem here, even when Paul and Barnabas, they're traveling, they're taking up a collection to be able to bring back to those that were in distress in Jerusalem. So they can say, even that the message is the same. The audiences are different. The message is the same. Strategies are different. We can agree that we're not in competition with one another, but we're in collaboration with one another. This is a really important truth to hold on to. It's really important when you love the church that you're a member of. It's really important when you're a part of a church that you celebrate its heritage and its present and you pray with great anticipation for the future. It's really important then. And I'm looking out at, at a group here that loves this church and praise God for the faithfulness of this church for 95 years. And until the Lord Jesus comes back, we pray that God would find us faithful. And we celebrate his work in this church. But while we celebrate it, we also know that God's work is larger than Dawson. And we celebrate his work in our church, but we also celebrate his work far beyond our church in other denominations and in other strategies and other ministries, and they're not in competition, but as long as the gospel is at the center, we are in collaboration with one another. I remember a few years back, we were vacationing because most of the Sundays that I have, I'm doing something on Sunday, and so we are always worshiping uh, together as I preach, but when we're on vacation as a family, we're able to worship together. I'm able to sit by. My family. That's why we love vacation, because one of the things is we're going to worship at the beach, we're going to worship in the mountains, and we've been able to go to different denominations and different styles of church. I remember a few years back, we were in Disney, we had our big Disney trip, which had two real wonderful highlights for me. One highlight was, is there's a bridge that you cross over and you can watch Splash Mountain, the people come down Splash Mountain, and there are these railings and that overlooked bridge, and one of our sons was of the age where his knee, his leg, went between the railings. He said, Dad, I'm I'm stuck here, so what did I do? I just yanked him, and he didn't come out, and it really hurt his knee. He said, ow, that hurts, and so his mom very gently says, well, bend your leg, do that, do that. He could not get out of the railing. It was not a good time here. So all the Disney EMTs came. We had the walkie-talkies. We had Mickey and Minnie that descend upon us. All the Disney cast members come to us. They have all of this ice cream that they're given to us, free ice cream. All of these snack passes for the rest of the day, the rest of the week they're given to us. And then the best part of it, endless fast passes for the rest of the day. So this, this is, some of you are going to Disney, uh, you're going to Disney in the coming months, you're going to Disney this summer, one of your children have to be sacrificed for the better of the family. It's only one of them, and it's, it's for the good of all. The whole rest of the day we had all this ice cream, we were going to all these fast passes, and, and one son, like Jacob, had a limp the whole time, the rest of the way. But suck it up, it was worth it. So... Sunday rolls around we're in Disney and we say okay well we're going to go to church here and it was really strange we we found this church it wasn't really advertised well uh, but we figured out it was on it was on one of the properties there one of the hotels and we show up on Sunday night and it was nothing I mean, all that were there in this kind of ballroom environment were 21 22 year old Disney cast members that worked there and the church was there for them and it was this wholly unique experience To be able to worship with all of the workers, the cast members who find home at Disney. And here we are, like the last thing they wanted to see were more tourists showing up in their work environment, worship environment. But it was just this rich, and I can multiply those kinds of stories by 14 years, being able to worship in Presbyterian environments and racially diverse environments, in in churches that mean in storefronts. And churches that meet in historic sanctuaries with ornate stained glass windows. With with churches that cut the lights all the way down. And cut the guitar and all the amplifiers all the way up. And with churches that say, stand up. Grab your broadman hymnal, and we're going to sing the first, the second, and the last stanzas of hymn number 374. And uh, then you go, and and they say, we're going to sing all five stanzas. And everybody goes, all five stanzas. We don't sing all five stanzas here. So you've been in these kinds of churches, and you realize the broadness of the body of Christ and how amazing it is. And when we look around us in our own community and when we look around us in the state of Alabama, we look around us in our nation and then in this world, we say praise God for Peter and Paul kinds of churches. Praise God for the diversity of the body of Christ and the unity that's at the center of that. So, praise God for gospel-centered Anglican churches. Praise God for gospel-centered Presbyterian churches. Praise God for gospel-centered Methodist churches. Praise God for gospel-centered Pentecostal churches. Praise God for gospel-centered non-denominational churches. Praise God for the diversity of the body of Christ and the unity of the body that is far greater than what any church no matter how great the church is alone can do, it's a preview. This is where we're headed to. A worship service and revelation that says every tribe, every tongue, every nation worships together in all of the diversity, but unified by that common adoration of our Savior. And Peter and Paul saying, look, we're not in, we're not in competition with each other you go do your thing, we're going to do ours, and we celebrate the unity in the body of Christ. Our cooperation is found in Christ. Our courage is found in Christ. Our conviction is found in Christ. The story picks up. Verses 11 through 14, but when Cephas came to Antioch, again, who's Cephas? It's Peter. He comes to Antioch. I opposed him to his face Boy, we have no idea. This conjunction but in verse 11, it's got a time element and we don't know what the time element is. Somewhere down the road, we've moved from Jerusalem, we've gotten to Antioch here. Peter and Paul have moved from this collaboration. And there's, there's a sense of conviction where Paul is saying, you're doing the wrong thing here, Peter. I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Verse 12, for before certain men came from John James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and he separated himself fearing the circumcision party. That's the group that said, you've got to be circumcised to be a follower of Jesus. And the rest of the Jews, they acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas, even the encourager, the son of encouragement, Barnabas, was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? It's the easiest way to think about it is to think about it in the cafeteria here. And, and that's, that's obviously not what's happening 2,000 years ago. But Peter is eating with Jews and Gentiles alike, the circumcision party that has created this ruckus in the churches in Galatia. that say, no, you've got to add to the gospel circumcision. They show up, and Peter, he feels a little insecure. He feels the pressure. So he takes his tray. He moves from the, the table with Jew and Gentile alike, and he goes, and all the rest of the Jews follow him, and they remove themselves from the Gentiles. They exclude themselves. They will not have table fellowship with the Gentiles. And Peter... Uh, heard from Paul. I love Paul because the last thing Paul was is passive aggressive. Paul, Paul saw the issue and he went to him before everybody and said, what you, do, what you are doing here is wrong. And in verse 16, this historical circumstance becomes the very scriptural impetus, the clarion call of what is called the Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther, a monk, 500 years ago, is reading in the book of Galatians, and he gets to verse 16 of Galatians chapter 2, and it reads like this, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, so that we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. And Luther said, this sounds familiar. I'm in a world where we're adding to the gospel 500 years ago, you, you have Christ alone plus the buying of indulgences. And this bold, courageous monk nails 95 protests upon the church door of Wittenberg. And, and the history of the Christian church has never been the same before and after. And what we see in this passage here is that we as Christians in the 21st century, we should have some, some grammatical antennas. We should be conjunction resistant when it comes to certain words of our faith. When you hear people say Christ and the gospel and faith alone and Christ and the works, Christ and baptism, faith and church membership. When you hear that that's what justifies you, Luther would say, Paul would say, hold on. The very purity of the gospel is that when we add to the finished work of Jesus, we subtract from the authenticity of our faith. The gospel doesn't need anything to be added to it. And when you add to the gospel, the gospel Plus your baptism in a particular church. That's what saves you. Or the gospel plus you doing this in this particular church. That's what saves you. Or the gospel plus your spiritual gifts. That's what saves you. When you add to the gospel, you're going down that same road that Peter was going down, the Judaizers were going down, and the same reason the book of Galatians was written. The gospel and subtracts from the very authenticity and purity of the gospel. We come now to the verse. We we started with Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. We come back to it, and we come back to it by being reminded that our core identity is found in Christ. Look again at verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, and the life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So when you understand Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, with everything that comes before it, you see that this is the crescendo. I mean, all that Paul was talking about in his own historical life, it is expressed in this phrase here, that when we put our faith in the finished work of Jesus, we are cemented. Martin Luther would say, we are cemented to Jesus. John Murray, the, the great uh, Puritan, would say, we have union with Christ. So that means his righteousness becomes our righteousness. His victory over death becomes our victory over death. We don't earn those things, but we receive those things in our relationship with him. We are in proximity to the one who has died for us, and has been raised for us. So when we're baptized, we say, buried with Christ in baptism. We die with him to our old self. And when we uh, come up out of the water, we say, raised with Christ in newness of life. So his resurrection becomes our resurrection. That's a part of our justification. That's a part of our sanctification. And that is a part of our destination, our glorification. That every part of the work of Christ has implications for every part of the journey of our Christian life. Now... You're here, and you hear this passage, and it might be familiar to you, and I want you to see that, that all of us come to this passage, and we read certain emphases in this passage, and we sort of diminish other parts of the passage. So let's just imagine Jack and Jill who went up on the hill to fetch a pail of water. Jack came down, he broke his crown, and Jill came tumbling after. Jack and Jill, they grow up, and they become Christians. Jack and Jill join a local church, and Jack and Jill both read Galatians chapter 2. But Jack needs to hear something, and Jill needs to hear something, and this is what they need to hear. Jack is a really, really respectable person. Jack is a rule follower. You give Jack a list, he will follow that list. Jack is the kind of guy that you give keys to the church, he opens up the church, he he shuts the church down. Closes, cuts off the lights, locks it up. He's the kind of guy that you want on a committee. He's the kind of guy that is faithful. He's a a dependable kind of guy. But but really, if you're to be honest, he he is a really grouchy guy. He's hard to be around, to be honest. But there, all the time, follows the rules all the time. But joy? Mm -mm. Nobody's going to call Jack a, a joyous person. Jill. Jill, she is the life of a party. She grew up, she had kind of legalistic parents, she becomes a Christian, and the last thing that Jill wants to hear is, I have to do anything. Jill, she trusts her gut. She trusts her intuition. Jill is a person that she never wants to be pinned down. She never wants to be boxed into a corner. She she never really wants to commit. She she wants to follow Jesus, but she she really doesn't want to be in a corner saying that she has to do this or not do this. She wants to be able to follow her intuition and her gut. Jack needs Galatians 2.20. He needs the last part of this verse that says, I live by faith in the Son of God Who loved me and gave himself for me. Jack knows that he was saved by faith, but he is trying to work to earn his sanctification. And there's no joy in his life because he's misunderstood that it's not the keeping of rules that saves a person, it's not the keeping of the rules that makes a person right with God. We are right with God in Jesus, so we pursue holiness. His divine yes, his divine love has been uh, given to us. So out of what he's done for us, we're propelled to obedience, not to earn God's love, but because God has shown us his love. Jack needs to hear the last part of this verse. And Jill, well, she needs to hear the first part of this verse. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. For Jill, there's still a lot of I. There's still a lot of me. I don't like that. I don't want that. For Jill, she needs to hear as a follower of Jesus the call to deny self, to take up her cross, and to come and follow Jesus, even when it goes against what she wants to do, And is comfortable to do, even when it goes against her intuition and her gut. So Jack and Jill, they're in this church. You know how I know they're in this church? Because they're inside of me. There's a little bit of Jack. And there's a little bit of Jill. in every follower of Jesus. And that's why we need this invitation this morning.